Hi, Doxology. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Kyle. I'm a member here, and I'm going to be doing the scripture reading tonight. Uh, but before I get started, I want to reintroduce and reiterate uh, a new procedure that we are going to be doing where uh, I'm going to invite you to stand while I'm reading um, to, to express or the, the reason we're doing this is to express our reverence for the word. We view uh, scripture as the word of God breathed um, out by God himself, and so we want to show proper reverence for that. So when I, before I start reading the scripture, I will invite you to stand, uh, and then when I finish, I will say this is the word of the Lord and ask you to say thanks be to God. So with that, we will be reading uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, and chapter 13, verses 17 through 25. So for those of you who are able, I invite you to stand. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought, you, brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word for, of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you, see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you, greeting, send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What's up, Doxology? Good to see you all. Glad to be invited back. You never know if you're going to get invited back. It's like Steve's a hard, hard act to follow. But I'm glad to be here, especially as uh, I get the privilege of closing out this, uh, this beautiful letter where uh, we've been introduced to, to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who's better, better than every prophet, priest, king that's ever existed. And we get to see him in full glory here throughout this, this book, this, this letter, this sermon. Uh, by way of starting tonight, let me ask you this question. Have you ever considered how hard closing words actually are, particularly to a sermon? If you're the sermonizer, you're agonizing, trying to summarize everything that you've said. In a book like this, I mean, that's a lot of summary, right, that you've got to kind of make kind of concise. But more than that, you're trying to, to perhaps finish on the, the most poignant thought that you can leave people with. And that's what the sermon writer here is trying to do in the letter to the Hebrews. But think about that just in the, the, the ordinary rhythm of your week of coming here to, to doxology and, and listening to your pastor uh, try to bring a close to a sermon. But more importantly, listen, uh, think about it from the perspective of you as, as the receiver. You kind of know your pastor's rhythm. He hits that last point at least you think it's the last point, and you kind of know where he's going, and it's kind of human in us to, at least for a moment, maybe even fleetingly, to think about, well, well what am I going to do when it's finished? What am I going to do when it's over? What am I going to do when, ser when service closes out? 
I'm going to stick around and talk with a few people. I'm going to help put the equipment up. I have my kids been fidgety such that I need to like, we need to leave. Let's just go home, get some food. The uh, slow, uh, slow kind of, uh, you know, an evening as we ponder what the week has in store for us. All those kind of things uh, perhaps are the things that we do as we um, happen upon the, the, the closing of, of a sermon. And this one is no, no different. Perhaps sometimes in, um, in our collective heart, a pastor, like what I often do, is when you think the pastor's winding down, he'll actually inject one or two more points and end up going 20 minutes longer than you expected him to. Of course, Stephen would never do that, right? I think the truth is, closing words of New Testament letters, um, we can, there's a kind of a formula to them. We know what to expect, particularly in Pauline letters, his epistles. Uh, he thanks some folks, he greets some folks, and then he gives a blessing. And therein is what's happening here in the letter to the Hebrews. But more importantly, I think what we should not do is ignore the gravity of the words that are being conveyed. These are important words. The writer of Hebrews is winding down this letter, this sermon, by first concluding some of his earlier thoughts regarding church leaders. And if I could sum up just a few of the things that he's saying in regards to church, leader, church leaders, it's, it's this. It's, t- it's, that, it's that today's world assumes that hierarchy must be in some ways abusive. We see that in movies and TV shows that we watch. We see it in real life. We sometimes see it in our families. We see it in the church. That sometimes hierarchy promotes an an underground, meaning that if there are people and persons over large groups, then very likely those people and large groups end up being uh, um, oppressed somehow. There's there's an embattlement of, of people against our leaders. And what the writer of the Hebrews is saying is that that's not the way that it has to be. What he's doing here is promoting this picture of of church leaders, pastors and elders who show love for those that are in their care. Furthermore, he's showing these leaders are ultimately in authority, but their authority comes from God. And one day they'll have to give an answer to that God for how they have cared for the people under their care. So it makes sense that the writer would urge his readers, this congregation that he's preaching to, to honor and respect leaders, and to the degree that they um, lead in the image of the, the ultimate leader, Jesus, that they even obey and submit to them and even pray for them. And then he gives them a blessing. So that, in, that really is the, the summation of the, the verses that we'll be looking at this afternoon. And with that, the preacher's wisdom here is twofold. The first thing he's doing is he's calling his listeners to obedience and submission. Listen again to verse 17. Obey your leaders, the writer writes, and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Don't get offended by what I say, but like obedience is kind of like a cuss word in, in the world that we live in, particularly in the church. I think outside of the U.S. military, which I spent a lot of time in, obedience language is not common in our culture today. Obedience language is not common in adult-to-adult relationships. I would even say obedience language is not common in our families. 
recall this for those of you that have kids. I mean, as early as four months, babies buck up against the wishes of their parents. By the time they're two, they're walking around the house, and all they're saying is no, no, no. And then they grow up from there and, and become whatever they're going to become in the world. It just gets worse from there. Genesis 3 informs us that the fallen human instinct is to go against any kind of authority. And yet the preacher here tells us that all Christians are called to be in obedience and submission to spiritual authorities. Obviously, that demands a little bit of explanation. It demands careful definition because what the preacher commends here doesn't mean unqualified blanket obedience to any and everyone. That's how cults get started. We see that on the TV every day right now because of uh, with the authoritarian uh, leaders and governments in our world that lord it over their their nation's people. So the question that we have to ask firstly is why this emphasis on obedience and submission to leaders, particularly spiritual leaders? And I want to offer you a few ideas. The first of uh, idea is that obedience and submission are part of the Christian life. If you thought about that, obedience and submission are part of the Christian life, not just for certain segments of Christians. The Bible would suggest that obedience and submission are for all Christians. More importantly, it's the way of Jesus. Here's the mantra that we get from Jesus throughout the Gospels. I, I, I only say what the Father tells me to say. I only do what the Father tells me to do. And then he lives that out. In John's gospel, the, the, the gospel writer um, quotes these words from Jesus. I come to do the will of him who sent me. And so Jesus, living out what the Father tells him to say and do, of course, this, his own obedience and his submission to God the Father leads him to the cross where he dies in our place for our sin. In very much the same way in Ephesians 5 the Apostle Paul introduces this entire section that a lot of times we, we relegate to him talking about marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as Jesus, uh, as, as Jesus has submitted himself to God and the Spirit. But have you ever considered that what Paul is doing, firstly, is actually introducing a way for us to be mutually submissive to each other? And then he gives the example of of what that could look like played out in marriage. Because later on in that same passage, he talks about what obedience and submission looks like as, as children submit to their, their parents, and also what, what it looks like for workers to submit to those who are over them. And so he's uh, encouraging us to a mutual submission. Even in this own letter of Hebrews, a few verses up, verse 7, the writer writes, Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. And so if there's someone in our life, a spiritual leader, uh, that's worthy of us imitating, it would ass- we would assume that also uh, they, that person, as much to the degree that they're following Jesus, it would be right for us also to obey them and be submissive to them. And so the, the writer here, he's honing in not just on anybody, not even government leaders here, as Paul does in Romans 13, to those who wield the sword over us for our own good, Paul would tell us. He's talking about spiritual leaders. Secondly, he is encouraging us uh, and emphasizing that obedience and submission uh, is important because Christian leadership in the church is plural. That's the way that we should think about leadership in the church, and that's what Steve talked about here as he was introducing the workmen's as, as potential elders for your church. The author writes, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, not obey, obey your leader and submit to him. 
And I think that's an important point. I didn't mean for it to rhyme, but it did. That's pretty cool. But the call here is for an obedience and a submission that is a plural leadership, plural leadership. And I think that's key because, I mean, we're experiencing this right now, especially in the evangelical world, where we see cults of personality, where one particular guy that's a gifted leader, by virtue of that gifting, lords it over a congregation, even a movement of people to whom he has no accountability towards. Many of us for the last year have been tuning in to the, the, one of the most popular podcasts to, to exist in the last decade, The Rise and Fall of, uh, of Mars Hill, where we have seen an up-close-and-personal view of this enigmatic, uh, enigmatic uh, leader, uberly gifted, probably one of the most popular, influential preachers we've seen in a century, on, you know, Mark Driscoll, and the church that he built from the ground up that is equally influential, and we have seen the authoritative, misogynistic, kind of abusive culture that came about because a number of reasons, but probably uh, chief among those is he was a man really gifted by God to do what he was doing, but he had no one to whom he was accountable to. And of course, the elephant in the room is we're part of that network, right? Acts 29. So if it could happen there, it could happen here. But I would assuage you from day one, as Steve has said, there really has been a group of people leading your church, not just your pastor alone, although he could do it alone. Not one person, but a group, a plurality. And that really is why I'm here. That's why Steve Keys invited me back, because he wants to show you that he's not alone. That's why Andrew Workman is standing up here. Steve wants to show you he's not leading alone. He doesn't intend to lead alone. And when we, when we choose not to lead alone but in a plurality, this protects us from the abuse of power. It makes clear that leaders themselves are accountable, that there's not unchecked power being displayed amongst those who are following. Because where there is unchecked power in the hands of one person, you can expect abuses to occur. And so doxology, your church exists as a congregation that espouses a plurality of godly leadership. And for that, you should say amen. Which begs the question, What does it mean to even obey, and even more than that, to submit? What does it mean to obey and to submit to the spiritual leaders that God has given us? And I would tell you it means, obedience means, that Christians are to humbly receive and follow the biblical teaching and exhortation of their leaders. You as a a congregant, as a member of a local church, the body of Christ, are humbly to receive and follow the biblical teaching and exhortation of, of your leaders. In other words, uh, you don't have to be undiscerning. You don't have to, uh, to check your intellect at the door. You don't have to, um, to, to promise absolute abdication of your personality and any freedoms that you have as a person or even as a Christian to, to whoever the, the pastoral authority uh, or ecclesiastical figure is standing behind the pulpit. That's not what that means. And we only have to look to the the letter of Hebrews to to corroborate that. Recall earlier chapters of Hebrews, the preacher is concerned about false teachers who show up with new and novel ideas and he leaks them into the congregation. And so the preacher is exhorting us, receive from the lips of your local church leaders the age-old teaching of the apostles. Solomon had it right, right? There's nothing new under the sun. And so don't let your ears itch for something new. 
And that really is the cycle of the, of the, of the history of the church. God raises up someone that brings, that ushers in renewal. They see abuses of various sorts. And God um, wants them to, he, he uses them, gifts them to, to, to encourage renewal. That's what the Protestant Reformation was all about. Martin Luther saw the abuses of, the, of priests uh, and the leaders in the Catholic Church, and he came up with 95 reasons why what they were doing, the selling of indulgences, was wrong. And Lutheranism and Protestantism grew to, uh, to what we know it, uh, know it as today. It only took less than a century for new and modern ideas to kind of water down the, the, the spread of the gospel that was happening through Luther, Lutheranism. And that happened through rationalism and on the heels of that, the Enlightenment. And what the Enlightenment does, did, and continues to do now is it takes... God, who's at the center of the universe, and puts man at the center. And do y'all know what happens every time we put man at the center of most things? It leads to chaos. And that's a challenge for the church, right? It's a challenge for Christianity. And so the writer says, don't let your ears itch for something new. What you need to hear is the good old apostolic teaching from the lips of your leaders. And when you hear your leaders articulating those things that were articulated at first from those who even the ones who walked and talked with Jesus, then those are the ones that you can obey because they are teaching you the truth. Don't listen to false prophets who come rolling through with new ideas. Listen to and obey and submit to your shepherds. And along with that, Christians are called to show due diligence to follow the godly leadership of your shepherds, which is what it means to submit. To, so, so submitting is not just you laying down, bowing down to, the, to, to anyone that comes along and doing whatever they say. Submitting is you simply showing due diligence for the godly leadership of people who are imitating um, the, the, the leadership of Jesus in front of you as your shepherds. And that doesn't mean that shepherds and leaders in the Christian church have absolute authority. That's not what that means at all. Spiritual leaders operate off of a derivative, a derivative authority derived from Jesus himself as he created the church. And so if you encounter leaders in the church who are out of line with God and his word, then they are operating outside of any authority at all because leaders in the church get their authority from the word. The church doesn't get its authority from, um, um, from anyone but scripture. And anything that we say that's out of accord with scripture ought to be rejected out of hand. I used to say this in the church that I planted in, uh, in, in Alexandria, Transit Church. Uh, we used to say this in our membership uh, meetings that we espouse to be a Jesus-centered church. And how you see that played out is, is uh, when you come in or when you gather with us in any kind of format, we want to make much of Jesus. We want to talk about Jesus. We want to sing about Jesus. We want to read scriptures about Jesus. We want to sermonize about Jesus. At the end, we want to pray about Jesus and send you out in the name of Jesus. And if you come in and you hear anything articulated other than that, a cult has taken over, grab your stuff, and walk out. And we were that adamant about where we got our authority. Because these leaders are accountable to God. That's another thing that the, the writer of the Hebrews says. That leaders, your spiritual leaders, are accountable to God. Verse 17, they keep watch over you as men who must give an account. 
And I think that's really important. Keep watch here literally means to be sleepless or to keep oneself awake. There's two biblical pictures that are pertinent here. At one of these we celebrate at Christmas. Think of the nativity scene, uh, Luke 2. Luke, uh, the gospel writer, tells us the story about shepherds who were out in the field keeping watch over their flocks at night. And of course, angels showed up. They sing hallelujahs there, um, announcing the birth of Jesus. And then uh, after that, they are kind of overwhelmed, and they decide to go and, and see the baby Jesus in the manger uh, in Bethlehem. But the focal point there, at least for, for a few seconds, one verse, are these shepherds out in the middle of nowhere. And, and the text says they're keeping watch over their flocks at night. They're keeping watch. They're not sleeping. They're not like hanging out. They're not looking the other way. They're not being lazy. They're in overwatch over their flocks, and it's at night when they can and should be probably sleeping. The train of thought here is spiritual leaders might actually lose sleep over their concerns for the church. I think the way that most pastors actually experience that is there are some people in the church for whom the pastor loses sleep over. And so the, the writer of Hebrews, the, 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 the pastors to which this writer is commending his people to submit to, I think he's saying these are good, energetic, conscientious, caring shepherds. And like the shepherds of old, keeping watch over their flock at night, the shepherds that God is giving you are there to make sure wolves don't creep in and snatch sheep and take them away. The, the shepherds are there to, to make sure that that false teachers don't come into your church and lead you astray. Another picture would be um, this picture that comes out of the Old Testament. The, the, the Old Testament prophets used to call themselves watchmen because of the, the picture that the watchmen evoked. Watchmen were the ones who uh, at night would stand on the wall in strategic spots and uh, they would usually have duty in three different watches of the night, nine to midnight, midnight at three, and three to six, so three-hour shift, and they're in strategic spots. They've got weapons, and they're looking out while the rest of the city is sleeping to ensure that they are protecting the well-being of the city. In other words, they're keeping watch over the city so that a marauding enemy won't come and overtake them. And I think that's important as well. They stood on the walls to protect the city from attack. Similarly, spiritual leaders are called to watch over our souls. And and, and here's why. Because the temptation of many of us, many of us sheep, is to often care more about being happy right now than being happy eternally. Have you ever thought that about yourself? Probably not. Like, I don't think that about myself. But the truth is, sometimes I just want to be happy right now and I'm not even thinking about eternity. I just want what I want to get. I want to get it right now. Um, and sometimes that's over and above my allegiance to, to whatever God has for me. And it's the job, it's the role of a spiritual leader to watch over your souls. And so sometimes a, a, a pastor shepherd keeping watch over you means that he's using the, the technology of our day. He's texting you, he's emailing you, he's checking in, say, hey, how's it going? Uh, let's have some coffee. Let's check up. Sometimes it's uh, a pastor shepherd 
uh, intervening in the cares of your life, things going on, having actually counseling meetings with you for the things going on in your life. Paul would suggest every once in a while, he's, he's directly inserting himself into your life to protect you as if you were going to get burned up with fire because you're, you're in that kind of a dire strait. And so a spiritual leader has a job of watching over your souls. Additionally, a spiritual leader watching over other people is oftentimes motivated by an awareness that they must give an account to God for the way they care for their flock. And, and if there's any series of words here, I think that sticks out most to someone who's, who is serving in this role of, of pastor shepherd. This is one of those, like, like I've got to give an account. And I think the sobering fact that develops from that is spiritual responsibility brings with it a higher level of responsibility and judgment. Responsibility and judgment. Spiritual responsibility brings with it a higher level of responsibility and judgment. The Apostle James says it like this in chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that who, those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I don't know about you, but anytime I see that word judgment, or judge, or be judged in the Bible, like, it causes the hair on my, my skin to stand up. Judgment can be a scary thing. And to be sure, here's what the Bible says about judgment. It says that all of us are going to experience some kind of judgment, not just spiritual leaders. Every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says, every one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, if you're a believer... If you profess faith in Jesus, if you've confessed your sins and received him by faith through grace, then the Bible tells us you're not judged based on your sins, the sins that you've committed. Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what Jesus dies on the cross for. His blood washes over all of our sins. But the picture that the Bible gives us of judgment It's one of individual believers, all of us, presenting our life's work to Jesus. And our our life's work comes metaphorically in the form of a building. And that building is made up of varying materials, some with gold and silver, clay, costly stones, wood, hay, straw. And the Bible says that our work will be shown for what it is because the day, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, as the Bible calls it, is going to bring our work to light. And so the, the admonishment from Scripture is, come to Jesus, particularly if you have never considered what you're going to do with the one that God has sent to save you for your sins. Come to Jesus, because none of our work, even our good works, will stand up to the scrutiny that, that, that God and his judgment will give it. But to this idea of a greater judgment... This is reserved, James will tell us, and the writer of Hebrews suggests, this is reserved for those who are in leadership over, over other people in the church. And so I would tell you by, by virtue of a professed calling, an ordination role in the church, that spiritual leaders will undergo a more strict judgment than most Christians. That means your pastor and your elder will experience a a stricter judgment 
when it comes to this day of judgment? What have you done with, I've, with what I've given to you, the gifts that, you, that I've given to you? In the words of James, I think this is how this plays out. If you're a teacher and claim to have an informed knowledge of God's word for God's people, and you further claim that you are charged to deliver it, you're going to be more responsible to deliver it clearly and to obey it. Increased responsibility means increased accountability. Don't you wish our government worked like that? Don't you wish elected leaders like lived their lives like that? That those who are given increased responsibility would also uh, assume an increased accountability? Jesus says it like this in Luke 12, to whom much is given, much is required. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him, to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Judgment. I mean, it can sound very scary, right? It, it like ups the ante. But therein is just the cost of leadership. Paul will tell Timothy, to an aspire to be an elder is a noble thing. And then he lists all these different qualifications um, which really are nothing but the scrutiny that you will be under when you assume the role. It's the cost of leadership. But I think therein also for us who follow is the impotence to do just that, to follow. Professed leaders and teachers in the church will undergo a stricter judgment because these leaders will answer for the care of souls. And so the rationale for obedience and submission from this preacher here in Hebrews is pretty clear. Firstly, he's in, in, encouraging us, leaders are so committed, or your leaders should be so committed to watching over your souls that they would even lose sleep for you. And that's even when you're not being bad. You guys are never bad, I'm sure. Secondly, spiritual leaders lead with this motivating knowledge that they answer to God for how well they do it. And the writer is in, in exhorting you, such care invites obedience from God's people. On top of that, I would add, if, if those aren't sufficient, re- sufficient reasons for you to, um, to, to, to lend obedience and submission to spiritual leaders, the author gives one more. He says, uh, obedience will make life better for all concerned. Verse 17 again, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that will be of no advantage to you. I say it like this. It's a true fact. Leadership can be a pain. Like leadership to lead can can end up in pain. You guys know this. For those of you that are in any kind of leadership or supervisory position uh, at, in, a, in a job here in, in D.C. Metro, whether it be for the government or uh, Fortune 500 company or the military or like even in your neighborhood, volunteerism in the church, leading other people, it can be a pain. Families at home, parents, you working together to corral your kids, it can be a pain. I remember my time in the Army. Um, I served as an officer for 20 years, eight days. And I remember very specifically a couple times where my subordinates did things that both in combat and in peacetime um, were not the, the things we wanted them to do. And, of course, those subordinates got in trouble. But where was, uh, where was uh, lieutenant, captain, and major... Lieutenant Colonel Toomer, he was standing right there at the position of attention, being reprimanded for the work, the thing that my subordinates had done. Increased responsibility is, is equal to a commensurate 
uh, increased accountability to whom much is given, much is required. Leadership can be a pain. Uh, this last couple of weeks, I've been uh, devotionally reading through Exodus, and uh, you got to love Moses. Moses was a reluctant leader. He didn't want to do it, um, but, but God says these important words. Moses, what's that in your hand? And so God led uh, Israel through Moses and that staff, and so, uh, you know, he's leading. They uh, have this miraculous um, delivery outside of Egypt. A uh, couple days outside of Egypt um, and beyond the Red Sea, they uh, are entering the, the, the area of the wilderness. God has taken them, taken them uh, the, the long route to the promised land because he's forming them into a nation and also into an, an army, and, uh, and they run out of water. Run out of water. And so what do, what do good church people do? They complained. They complained to Moses. Moses complained to God, and, and Moses ends up groaning. His joy, of, the, the joy of leadership turned to, to pain real quick. Uh, fortunately, God provided a miracle. God tells Moses, hey, use the staff, hit the rock, the water comes out, God provides food, manna during the day, uh, he sends quail from the shores, and they have food to eat. Fast forward 40 years in the wilderness, and the very same thing happens again. They're out in the middle of nowhere, they run out of water and supplies, and they say to Moses, Moses, why in the world have you led us and our children and all of our stuff out here to die. Would that we were in Egypt where we had leeks and onions and meat pots. We were in chains, yes, but gosh, we at least had food to eat. And Moses, you know, um, being the leader, receiving all of this complaining, he gets angry and God tells him to, to speak to the rock. What does Moses do? He strikes it. God causes the miracle. Water comes out, but Moses is prevented from going into the promised land. Those people, those rebellious people. I think all the leaders know this pain. The pain of people not heeding your words and it ends up ruining their lives. And, and it's not just heeding your words, it's, it's heeding the words of the Bible that you're giving them. The pain of betrayal, the pain of walking with someone through hard times and seeing them walk away from God, the pain of unrepentant relationships. Pastors get a front door seat to to all of that. Can I let you all in on a secret that's going on right now? Actually, it's been going on for a couple decades, maybe even the last century. Pastors are hurting. Pastors are hurting. Pastors as a group are one of the most hurting and abused segments of our society, and the pandemic has has worsened it. I get I get to see this up close and personal in my current work of training uh, men like Steve to plant churches. I get to see it up and personal with guys that I coach who are leading churches that are, are raising their hands and say, you know what, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this. I, I'm out. I'm gone. And it's as if sometimes we treat our pastors like drink machines. Okay. Church members, I know we don't, t- we don't like intendingly do this, but sometimes the pastor is like, all right, I need a little something right now. I'm going to put a dollar and 25 cent in the drink machine so that I get my drink out. And sometimes we come to the pastor Pastor, I need help with, with this. Uh, uh, what's your political persuasion? What do you think about CRT? Um, did you go to that Black Lives, rally matter, um, ra- Black Lives Matter rally? I mean, all these things. And pastor's saying, you know what? I didn't sign up for this. I signed up to, like, actually read the Bible and talk about it, not to be the, the one source of, of that, that's bringing people together and also dividing them. Pastors are hurting. 
Today we're ex- experiencing the greater number of pastors who, have, who are experiencing mental and physical um, health breakdowns at a very high rate. And so the pastors of today's day, they're depressed, they're confused, they're exhausted, they're scared, and they're alone. Pastors are in pain. Having said that, along with that pain comes a lot of joy. And here's why. Pastors get to do what they're called to do. So I I let you on the, the, the backside of what's going on with pastors. Don't feel sorry for pastors. Don't feel sorry for your pastor. Why? Because pastors are called to do what they're doing, right? And there's a reward from God from them being able to do it. Because along with the pain, there's joy. Joy when somebody comes to faith. Joy when broken relationships are mended. Joy when somebody gets baptized. Joy when the church grows through membership. Joy when you add a new staff member like John who alleviates, you know, stuff that the pastor either doesn't want to do or is not gifted to do. Joy is in the ministry that most pastors wouldn't trade for anything in the world. And that's why the second thing the preacher um, of Hebrews exhorts the congregation to do is to pray. Verse 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. And so the pastor talks about um, his conscience being clear. And here's why. Because he says we, not just him, but whoever he's writing on behalf of towards his congregation, he says, on behalf of uh, those of us who are leading you to the best of our ability, we have performed our spiritual duty both to God and towards you, our friends and our congregation. His conscience seems to have given him this confidence to, to be able to ask wholeheartedly for the prayers of the saints. And a specific request, specific request in verse 19 is that if they pray, he expects that their labor will get him to them more quickly, wherever that, that place is happens to be. He also seems to think that if they fail to pray, it's going to either slow him down or possibly prevent him from even coming to them in the first place. And so, I mean, firstly, he's just showing simple faith in prayer, but more importantly, I think the application from this is he's urging us to pray for our leaders. He's urging us to pray for our pastors. You guys know this. If you want power in your life, you got to pray. It's good to read your Bible. That gives you knowledge of God. But power comes from prayer. If we want to see power in our ministries as well, the ministries of our church, we pray. And so think about this. How different would the church be if the majority of people pray? Pray for your church. Pray for its ministries. Pray for your pastor. We might experience supernatural suspension of business as usual worship. We come in with an expectancy that we're going to meet with God, and he's going to speak to us prophetically through his word. There might be unexplainable visitations from the Holy Spirit, not anything weird, people coming off the street and being healed from their disease, of of, of mental illness being um, gone away from us, of, of relationships that are not reconciled, becoming reconciled. Why? Because of the work of the Spirit amongst us. More people going into deeper levels of discipleship, more more leaders rising up from amongst us, and perhaps even more conversions, simply because we prayed. 
Doxology, will you commit to pray for your pastors, your pastor and your new elder, if he's affirmed, and the other leaders of your church? Here's how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 1. On him, Jesus, we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. The apostle was convinced that prayer is not just a fly by night. I'm just going to do this by out, of, out of consistency or rhythm or frequency, he was convinced that prayer helps, that prayer works. Then many will give thanks, Paul says, on our behalf for the gracious favor granted to us in answer to the prayers of many. And then, in true fashion, what does the preacher do? He gives a blessing, and he says goodbye. I, I can't do justice to what the, the preacher in Hebrews does at the closing of this letter, but I would tell you this is considered the most exquisite, the most soaring of all scriptural benedictions in all the Bible. Many a preacher sending their church out to be Christians in the world have raised their hands to, to the words, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Those are powerful words. What I would commend to you in just four phrases is that what we're being invited into in this benediction, in this blessing, is is to believe something about what God is doing in your life in order for the life that he's called you to live to be lived out. God is calling you to believe. And the first thing he's calling you to believe is an invitation to receive God in his peace. It's Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, Jesus comes into Jerusalem very unexpectedly. He comes in riding on a donkey. And he does that on purpose. He does it on purpose because the donkey is a symbol of peace. He does it on purpose because he's fulfilling the, the, the words of Scripture in Zechariah that says the king would come riding on a donkey. But I just can't, I, I mean, you have to reflect on this. If it were you or I, there's no way we would come in riding on a donkey. Me, I'd choose a lion or, or maybe an elephant or a giraffe, right? Because, like, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show some pomp and circumstance. Jesus comes in riding on a donkey because a donkey symbolized peace. He comes in as the God of peace. In this text, we're, inviting, we're being invited to receive the God of peace because outside of Jesus, we're God's enemies. Romans 5, Paul says, you know what? Every once in a while, we'll die for a good man, but, but God shows his love for us in, the, in this. While we're sinners, while we're still enemies of him, guess what he does? He sends his son Jesus to die for us. Secondly, we're being invited to receive God's power. The text says it's the power that raised Jesus up from the grave. Romans 5 says, don't you know that the power that raised Jesus from the grave, the spirit of God that did that dwells in you, in your mortal flesh? We're being invited not just to believe that, but to receive it. Thirdly, we're being invited to receive God's propitiation. The text says, through the blood of the eternal covenant. In other words, it's as if Jesus, 
on the cross. He's stretching out his arms. We're behind him. And he's protecting us, not just from the darts of the enemy. He's protecting us from the wrath of God that is due us because of our sin. And with his arms outstretched, what does he do? He dies in our place for our sin, church people. That's what it means for his blood to be spilt on the cross. He brings us into a beautiful covenant for those of us that profess his name. He absorbs the wrath of God on our behalf. And lastly, the main blessing which the author is pronouncing on this congregation, by extension, pronouncing on you is that God will equip you with everything you need in order to live the life he's called you to live. And so the invitation is to believe that but also to receive it. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you, Doxology Church, with everything good that may, you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And the church said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would work it into our heads, that it might leak into our hearts and be useful in our hands for you and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.